Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to part 4 of 13 of Feast for Crows. Yes, we're back for some more Scraps and Skulls, some fellow readers, fun. So welcome, thank you for coming back to us. I am speaking to you from a rather sunny, hot England, so you know, I enjoy that. As always, we'd like to extend my thank yous for firstly, like I said, being here and listening and downloading and sharing and all those wonderful things you do, but also just reaching out to all those people who are still having a tough time, whether you're out there protesting, doing the good work, whether you're still one of our key workers, still struggling against the onslaught of this horrible pandemic we're in. We have not forgotten you. We support you in every way that we can. And hopefully this podcast can give you some relief or distraction or whatever it is we can do. We'd love to hear from you as always. So comments about that, comments about the episode, just come and say hello. We always like to hear from you here on the aisle. Like I say today, we're on part four already. And I don't know why in my head I had this down as 12 episodes, but I saw the other day it's actually 13, but still close enough, isn't it? We are now a third of the way for Feast of Crows. It is streaming through after you spend weeks and weeks doing Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings and especially Storm of Swords and we've still got a big old edition coming up in Dance of Dragons. This just feels lightning quick doesn't it but we're enjoying it. At least I am. I hope you are too. Before we continue just want to say thank you to our wonderful patrons as always. You are very much loved and appreciated. As usual I'll tell you Storm's End is coming. Don't worry it is still coming. And only two pieces of news before we get going here. First, just a, a quick shout out to some of you, both patrons and, and public listeners as well. You have always been so lovely to me and your support. But especially this week, I've had several messages, again, like last week, just supporting and being nice about my going on about my own personal writing, which is always very difficult to talk about. I'm not good at it. That's why the Storms End chapter is taking a bit long. I've been talking about my own novel writing and query uh, letter writing which is tough on twitter and you've been wonderful and like i say some of you have sent private messages it blows my mind just that you're interested in the first place but also that you're so nice about it so i i try not to talk about it too much here on the podcast because i know that's not what you've all signed up for but if you are interested and you want me to talk more about that i don't know maybe there's bonus episodes we can do maybe i need to set up something separate but if you want to know you can always ask because i like talking about it i'm just not good at it but anyway aside from that much more importantly much more fun quick announcement because i'm sure you've all been like me listening along or watching the live streams from radio westeros i know we mentioned them back a couple of weeks ago in our halftime shout outs i think probably at the end of storm somewhere around there i think they've had eight episodes out now I've been incredibly enjoying them. I know you have as well. Talking about the Winds of Winter is always fun. Talking about them with Radio Westeros and all their special guests, even better. And I'm very, very proud and happy to announce. You all already know if you listened to this weekend's past episode with Scad, good friend of ours from Davos Fingers. They were talking about Aya this week. That was a lot of fun because I love Aya. And you would have heard at the end Lady Gwen mention that the next one, episode 9, coming up this Saturday, which is, what, the 27th? I have been lucky enough to be invited on. Yes, amazingly, uh, still astoundingly, Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy, two of my firm favourites, two of the people that really got me into this fandom in the first place so many moons ago now. They've invited me on to chat with them. And again, I just want to say thank you to them. It really does blow my mind because I am such a huge fan. Of it. They are the, the giants. I, I know I am not really worthy to come on their episode. So thank you guys for inviting me on. I look forward to that. It blew my mind enough last year when I was lucky enough to 
come over to the radio and do one of their trivia episodes with Lady Gwen. That was fun enough. Now we're doing an even bigger episode and we're going to be talking about the prologue of The Winds of Winter. Ooh, okay, so that is a bit of a big subject. I'm already scrambling thinking, oh, God, oh Lord, what am I going to say? Because it's all theoretical. Like Lady Gwen said at the end of the stream, this is a bit harder to guess. We're really reaching out into the realms, but I'm looking forward to talking about that. So please do come along if you can or catch it after. There'll be a live stream on YouTube. It's 10 p.m. my time, UK time for you fellow Brits. I always like talking to Yoke Boy, our fellow countryman. So I guess that is five in Eastern time. I think I'm right in saying that. Five or six, something like that. You know, you've already been watching anyway. So this Saturday, 27th, I will be trying not to make too much of a fool of myself on Radio Westeros. And even if you can't stand me, I don't know why you listen to this podcast if you are, if you are. You can listen to Lady Gwen and Yoke Boy talk the prologue of A Winds of Winter. I got a lot to say about that. You know what I'm like with prologues, lots to say. Not saying I'll be right, but lots to say. Okay, so that is very exciting, very good news. Looking forward to that, very, very pleased. What about today though? Part four of A Feast for Crows. Let me tell you very quickly who we've got today because it's a good old episode. I'm looking forward to it. We will be starting with The Kraken's Daughter slash Asher. Oh yes, Asha, my favourite. We get our one interaction with her, so I've got a lot to say about that. We're back to another Cersei, Cersei free. Then on to Ares, the Soiled Knight. That's a bit of a controversial one. Lots to say in that one as well, because that's another singular. And we end with Brienne free. Yes, you know we have to have Cersei and Brienne in there. That's just the way it is. So why don't we get going then? Because busy week for me. I've got this. I've got to prepare for that Winds of Winter talk. And I still do have all that querying fun to do. Plus, more of my own writing. I know, don't worry, I'm not going to go into it. I'm just saying, not only querying, I'm actually starting creating stuff again. Ooh, which does take up a lot of mind power when you have a brain small as mine. So let's get going, shall we? Let's kick off with Asher 1 slash The Kraken's Daughter. And what a chapter this is to kick off the day. Asher is a favourite character of mine, I've said before. And this chapter in and of itself is a firm favourite overall. I love Asher Greyjoy. I love her no-nonsense attitude, her ambition. The fact that she might be the smartest and most conscious of any Ironborn not named Roderick, who I'm also looking forward to meeting today. And she is also responsible for one of my favourite chapters in the entire series with her Esgred escapade back in A Clash of Kings. It's Theon... Two, three, something like that. Well, go back. You, you'll remember from when I talked about it because it is an amazing chapter. So I thank her for that. What makes it a shame is we only get one chapter from her in this book. And it's a hell of a chapter? Sure, but I'm greedy. I want more. Luckily, we will be obliged during A Dance of Dragons, but it's a long old wait. I want to talk more Asher now, so I guess I'm just going to have to put all my effort into today and uh, milk it for what I can. Asher is also a continuation of something we've already experienced with Area Hotar back in our first episode of Feast for Crows. Single chapter POVs within a book. The lineup for such, excluding obviously prologue and epilogue characters, is Ario, Asher, Ares, and Melisandre. So three of those are within this book, and we've already had one before, and as you've probably noticed, we're getting two in today's episode. Ares Oakheart, bit of an outlier that we'll come to later, because at least the other two from Feast will continue in dance. And we're going to assume, I think we mentioned this last week, that Melisandre is going to get more chapters in wins. So only Ares will be the one chapter person. But like I said, we'll talk about him later on. I could have done, personally, with a lot more Asher right here in Feast. But then again, her dance chapters are amazing. Some of my favourite chapters in that entire book, especially the Battle for Deepwood Mott. I believe that is the 
Wayward Bride chapter, but they're all great. The King's Prize, The Sacrifice, yeah, we're looking forward to them. A long wait, but worth it once we get there. Still, looking back to Feast, her storyline does continue after this single chapter during the King's Maid. We will see her again. But as we've spoken about before, we're following that same mirrored structure for both the Iron Islands and Dawn. We see that today. With a mere chapter between them, we'll get two loners who will go on to a major moment of defeat later on. Asher loses the King's Moot, and Ares, well, he has it even worse, at least Asher survives. And later on, we'll have two Victorians and two Ariannes still to come. So George really is keeping these two new lanes, two new openings side by side. I'm still obsessed with that as we go. And while we're talking about one-time POVs, this is still a big difference because Ario Hotar, we didn't even know he existed. He came out completely left field. Aaron Greyjoy and especially Ares Oakheart were very, very much background characters with minimal important interactions with anyone central. But Asha is different. She's already had a big role in the story, even if it's been a while since we've seen that. Not only does she have that amazing Esgrid part with Fionn, she also has the stuff of him at the feast, she has her own campaign in the north, and her very sage advice where she tries to save Fionn at Winterfell. So this is someone we are well established with. So that shouldn't be forgotten when factoring in the joy of being able to read through her POV. No, it's not quite the same as being allowed a, a Brienne or Cersei POV, but it shouldn't be discounted. And I'm going to warn you here, that thought about Cersei and Brienne gaining their own POVs in this book, as well as Asher, that clicked something for me during the week of writing my chapter notes. And I'm going to warn you, it, this does go down quite a rabbit hole. So much so that I ended up writing a Reddit post about what I'm going to speak about now, and, uh, well, actually, Reddit was quite nice to me. Sometimes they don't like me over there, but this time I got some silver and some nice compliments, so that was cool. And what I'm talking about is this idea that clicked to me, that I, it was already in my head, but it just occurred a bit stronger, just highlighted to me when I had that thought, is how Feast is the most female-centric book in terms of female POVs by far. And like I said, real big rabbit hole. Some of you will have seen me ranting about this on Twitter already. You might have been nice enough to read the Reddit post, so apologies but i am going to kind of go back through that here just give you the basic gist you may skip forward if you wish but this is something one i think is important to talk about and two i like talking about because most of my favorite characters in this series are women and even though mostly it's the ones we don't get in this book in catelyn r.i.p and daenerys but still very important i think if we're going to talk about the structure and what makes this book so brilliant. Now I do warn you, there's a bit of number crunching here and it is not my strong suit that belongs to my wife. So yeah, I might make mistakes, but I think I got away with it. Anyway, let's get down to it. Of the 12 Feast POV characters, not counting Pate, six are female. Now let's compare that with the other books. In the Game of Thrones, that score is still 50%, four out of the eight POVs. Again, I'm gonna discount prologue and epilogue characters because you know, they've only got one per book. So while Game of Thrones is the same in terms of share of male-female POVs, the actual chapter count is very, very different. Hold on to that thought, we'll come back to that. Let's just continue to the other books. So for Clash of Kings, 4 out of 9. Storm of Swords, 4 out of 10. And remember, Catelyn actually bows out halfway through that book. And it's also worth noting that those four are the same four, those first three books. It's Catelyn, Danny, Sansa, and Aya. We've got this book we'll come back to. And Dance is 5 out of 16. And three of those... Cersei, Melisandre and Aya make up a mere five total chapters. So I think you can see the point I'm making here is that Feast so far is on level with Game of Thrones as having 50% of its chapters be represented by females. But that really doesn't tell the whole story, is it? So let's go a step further and look at the actual percentage of chapters, total chapters, because not all POVs are created equal, are they? We know this. 
And again, I'm discounting prologues and epilogues, although we should note none of those have been female either yet. That could change. I'll save that for Radio Westeros. So out of Game of Thrones, there's a total of 71 chapters, again, taking off the, uh, the prologue. 32 are in a female POV, and that's largely thanks to Daenerys really picking up the slack once Ned bows out. We talked about that, didn't we? How she really takes over the final act. So that's good for 45% of the book, which is higher than I first imagined, if I'm honest. 45% of the total Game of Thrones chapters, female POVs. Okay, cool. What about Clash then? 68 total chapters, 30 of them are female POVs. So that's only slightly behind, 44%. Mainly that's due to Aya taking over there. She gets the highest count, sort of in the Tyrion. Storm of Swords, 79 total chapters, 33 female POVs. So that's down slightly to 41%. Again, Aya doing the hairy listing in that book. Come back to Feast, because let's look at Dance. 70 total chapters, only 18 female POVs. So that plummets right down to 25%. I think... That might be me uncovering some of the reason that dance, personally, my least favourite of the five. I know a lot of you out there will consider that sacrilegious, and it's a lot of people's favourites, and for good reason. I think it's clear to point out the least favourite of the Song of Ice and Fire books still puts it way ahead of 95% of books I've ever read. So it's not an insult. Chill. I love Dance with Dragons. But still, that's pretty shocking, is it? Down to 25% of the chapters in that book being female. But what about Feast? That's what we're talking about. 44 total chapters, 27 female POVs. That's 61%, a huge jump, and obviously a clear majority and a total outlier compared to the rest of the books. Not only that, but the top two leading POVs are both female in Cersei and Brienne. That doesn't occur in the rest of the books. The closest you get is if we're looking at top threes, then in the Game of Thrones, Daenerys and Catelyn are two and three behind Ned. But in this book, we have a gold and silver going to Cersei and Brienne. They combine together for 18 chapters. That's good for 41% of the entire book. And I found this interesting. If you combine all the male POVs, all the male POV chapters in A Feast for Crows, you combine also for 18 chapters. So Brienne and Cersei alone match all the males in this book. So that's that's just a bit mind blown to me. I think that's great. I love that. I think that's a really big key part of why this book is so good. Now, as always, one or two, if you'd like to jump down the throat and not really get your point and say, well, why are you saying the males don't matter? They're, they're not as good inherently because of their gender? No, no. Oh, come on. Calm down. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it's a good thing that we have so much representation in this book. I'm saying I enjoy a lot of the female chapters. Not all of them. They're all chapters in their own right. Some are good, some are bad. I'm just highlighting one outlier this is in the series and why it's just another reason we should love this book. And I went even further into the number crunching on the Reddit post. So I'll leave that for you if you want to go and look and uh, have a read of that. Thanks if you do. I'll leave that huge deviation there. I'm not really sure why it occurred to me just in this chapter. Because obviously we've already had a lot of female POVs. But I do think it's something that should be highlighted and celebrated. And like I say, female POVs, you know I'm about them. Catelyn still reigns supreme as my favourite POV character. Daenerys is right up there, probably on level with John. The Stark sisters can't be far behind. There's Brienne. I've already talked about Asha. We're just spoiled, basically, and we're just lucky that we have a writer who can write both genders so wonderfully. So thank you, George. And last point before we actually get to the text of the chapter here. Just cast your mind back to the first episode of Feast of Crows. I really didn't like Aeron. You might remember. I despise Aeron, and I wasn't all that enchanted with that opening uh, introduction to the Ironborn storyline. But luckily... Asher turns me right around on the Iron Islands subject because the actual events of these two chapters are very similar. 
or the actual focus of the chapter. This one, like Aeron's, is concerned with the king's loot and the gathering of allies, as well as what it might mean to lose. And obviously, the shadow of Euron looms large in both. Probably more in the Aeron chapter than this one, but still, he's always there. And it's a deep look into the people of the Iron Islands and how their society is structured. I think we get that more today than we did in Aeron's. But right from the off, right from the opening of the page, I just find it much more interesting and more palatable through Ash's eyes. So let's get to it, shall we? Let's actually get to this text. I'll start rambling on about the intro. So despite the fact that we love Asher and it's brilliant and I'm glad she's here, we actually kind of start off on a low note because Asher is lacking those crucial allies that she so needs. And as the first line notes, she has plenty of cousins in the numerous Harlors, so that's good, but unfortunately they are not enough. We've got Botleys and Stone Trees as well, and like I said, we're going to get introduced to more and more families and more and more setup of how the Iron Islands work, but for right now, in the present, that's not enough either. So Asha has a problem, one already set up for us in Aaron's chapter. Classic George getting us invested in the chapter. We've got a conflict, writing 101, we need to solve it. And what makes it more interesting is that this conflict, this problem, actually goes against what we've already established about Asha. She's popular, she seems to have no problem getting friends. So what's happening here? Have we just seen her reach her limits already? Is Has something changed since we've last saw her? Now everything is really important, really on the line, so she does not have it in the clutch, so to speak. How is she going to resolve this? George has got us in, he's already ensnared us. But she does have some allies, and Karma Maid is present here on the first page. So well done you, if you remembered that he has been mentioned before, back in Theon 3, and of Clash of Kings, as one of the best swords on the island. That's what was said about him. So it's not like Asha has nothing going for her. She does have Harlor, she does have some allies, she does have Karma Maid. So it's not like she's completely on her own here. But immediately, we set up the three main interactions Asha's going to have in this chapter. We have Roderick Harlor, her uncle, her mother, Alanis, who, okay, that's kind of seen through flashback, but she's going to be a big part of this chapter. And we also have Christopher Botley, who's going to close out the chapter for us. For Roderick, we've not heard of him before, so this is a little tease of him liking his books, and that's always good for getting our attention, isn't it? I figured we would have heard about Alanis before now. I don't know how you say it, you might say Alanis. I'm going to say Alanis. And mostly we would have heard of her in the context of being Balon's wife, and no one giving much attention to her as a person. But I actually searched for her name, and it appears this is the first instance of that actual name being used. She is thought of by Theon in terms of his lady mother uh, in his return to Pike, but largely as an afterthought, and with him being told that she now lives on Harlow, and then that's just kind of it. Doesn't really think about her again. So this is really our first introduction to that character properly. And I actually thought we had a conversation between Asher and Theon where Asher advises Theon to go and visit his mother before he sails to war, but I seemingly can't find a quote now, so I might be mistaken, I might be cross-remembering with the show here, Correct me if you if you know the answer. One of the facets of Asha I think we appreciate most is the fact that she focuses on the maternal side of her family, despite the rest of them just having cast off Alanis and her family completely. Alanis is a backfork to Theon, her own damn son who hasn't seen her in 10 years, yet he was conveniently obsessed with re-meeting his father. That's a big thing, but his mother, I don't know, she'll be fine. I'll see her next time, don't worry, I'll see her in 10 more years when I come back. Just doesn't matter very much to him. And that's very representative of how Westeros as a whole, but particularly the Iron Islands, views and treats women. Alanis, essentially, has served her purpose. She had children, two of whom died, and one got taken away, so there's no grandchildren to help look after or anything like that. So really, she's just, uh, well, we're kind of done with her. Let's just shift her off, especially for a man like Balon, who obviously isn't the most 
caring and supportive of women. Alanis has forgotten. She's allowed to just head off to the periphery and drown in the sorrow. Theon doesn't care. Balon doesn't care. Note that none of Euron or Victarion or Aeron ever think about enlisting her or even capturing her to further their own means. At least I don't think they do. That's how unimportant she is to all of them. For so many in Westeros, uh, cough cough Tywin, cough cough, women are nothing more than baby factories. They're just walking wombs, aren't they? And so when that usefulness is gone, you let them up to pasture, basically. That's the line of thinking for many men. Luckily not all, but many men in Westeros. So that gets even worse for an elder woman. And when I say elder, I'm talking past childbearing age or perhaps early widowhood. For those women, their role is largely just to mourn. You're there to either support the living or mourn the dead. That's your whole worth, apparently. We get that with the explanation on Gwyneth and the Widow's Tower. That's all that society allows these women to be. I think it's important to note that this is very easily what could have become of Cersei or Catelyn. It could still happen to Cersei, I suppose, were she to live that long. I don't think that's a strong bet, but it could happen. Let's say Catelyn didn't die at the Red Reading or didn't, or didn't go to the twins and went to Seaguard or wherever else first. Now, Catelyn is a strong woman, we know. And if she did maybe discover or reunite with at least one of her children, perhaps it would be enough to revitalise her. But there's every chance that if Rob still goes and everything else goes the same way, she still thinks Bran and Rickon are dead, she assumes the same for Aya, and there's every chance she would have spent the rest of her years looking out of a window, watching for ghosts and wasting away, much like Alanis is. We already know she's she grew up as the Watcher, always waiting for her father, so she could have had a kind of inverse of that and just grown old thinking about her dead children and her dead husband. When we think of the term of Feast for Crows, it's about people scrapping over leftovers and trying to get what they can and starting new fights, etc, etc. We've talked about that theme over and over again, of course, obviously, already, and we will continue to do so. But there are other observers to feasts, and Alanis is one of them. She can look at the war from afar and just see the scraps be left and forgotten, with only her to remember. So at the very least, Asha still cares for her mother, even if no one else does, and we've got to love that about her. It's incredibly painful for her to... See Alanis in this condition we have described to us in this flashback, and it actually, the description isn't too far from the physical description of Lady Stoneheart, so there is a strong link there. But Asha still goes to see her when she can anyway, because no one else will. No one will give her the tidings of Theon, despite the news presumably of having been there for months. So that's just a, yeah, that's a tough part of this chapter, it's a bit of a gloomy opening. In the same vein, Asha also cares for her uncle, despite him not being cut from the typical ironborn cloth. She doesn't care, he's more interested in books than swords, in fact, she sees the value in it, and one of the very best Asher sequences we have, which is coming up in this chapter, is when she insists on listing Roderick as one of her uncles. In Westeros, and on the Iron Islands, and on the Iron Islands, the entire maternal line can often just be completely discounted. That side of the family just doesn't matter as much, but not to Asher. Yes, she is great, we can confirm. This is also the first mention we get of Tristopher Botley, although the Botleys were brought up in Aeron's chapter with the drowning of Sawain. Not Sir Wayne, Sawain. Right here, we get more hints to get us intrigued about that whole subplot and what that means, this time with the notion that there's an extra history we need to discover about Asher and Triss. There's the quote. This should be awkward. She had not seen Triss Botley since. No, she ought not to dwell on it. So good again by George just laying those little breadcrumbs for us to follow. There's something for us to discover here. Again, writing 101, George is just classic at being absolutely perfect at these basics of getting the reader interested. And I know I keep chatting about the mirroring of Ironborn and Dornish storylines, but this sentence, this quote I just read out, and the writing technique is astoundingly similar to what is used at the opening of Ares slash The Sword Knight, where he also mentally references a woman he is not allowed to talk about. I think we know who that is. We'll come back to that later. It's just amazing how similar these chapters are written. 
Next quote for Asher. She caught the woman's nose between thumb and forefinger and pinched. You will do as I say, and if this babe dies, no one will be sorrier than you. Free Tooth squealed and promised to obey, till Asher let her loose and went to find her uncle. So we've been busy talking about Asher caring for people, and now she decides to prove it to us again, although in a rather different way. First, she shows off how good of a captain she is and how she treats her crew. Recall how disastrous Fionn was at that part of Ironborn life as well, but also at how she treats her captives. Probably not something we would have expected from Ironborn, and she cements this kindness with strength from that quote I just read out. Yes, it is indeed possible for someone to be caring and strong at the same time. Who knew? Yes, mystery's been solved everywhere here. Of all the characters not named Eddard, Asha might be the best for getting that balance right, I think. We should also note that in a moment, Asha claims she is only looking after these people, her captives, the Glovers, because it helps cement her control of Deepwood Mott. And while I'm sure that is a part of it, it's clearly not the whole story. Asha is actually just kind of being decent about them as well. On the way to see Roderick, Asha gives us a mini description of Ten Towers, the castle of the Howlors, which is a pretty cool castle we see far too little of. You know, you know, I'm big on the castles. I'll try not to go into deep here. Personally, I hope we end up with Ten Towers being the great castle of the Iron Islands when it's all said and done, and Pike being left to decay. Ten Towers is bigger, newer, and way cooler than its ten different towers. And it's even better positioned than Pike in terms of interacting with the mainland. It's on the eastern side of the uh, Iron Islands. The counter-argument being that Pike as an island is better defensively thanks to its cliffs and all that kind of thing. Well, it's a shame that line of thinking didn't work out too well in the Greyjoy Rebellion, isn't it? Hmm. Besides, while we're relatively short on geographical information about Harlaw, the island, the Harlaw extended family has five separate keeps and castles on the island, so they're probably fine for defensive purposes. And of course, the favourite part of this castle is, well, I'll read it to you. The book tower was the fattest of the ten, octagonal in shape and made of great blocks of hewn stone. The stair was built within the thickness of the walls. Yeah, we get a tower named after books. You've sold me, George. I'm there. I'm going to ten towers. But what about the man within the tower, Roderick himself, who has a similar description used to make us love him immediately? And here it is. Not that there are any rooms where he doesn't read. Lord Roderick was seldom seen without a book in hand, be it in the privy, on the deck of his sea song, or whilst holding audience. Asher had oft seen him reading on his high seat beneath the silver scythes. He would listen to each case as it was laid before him, pronounce his judgment, and read a bit whilst his captain of guards went in to bring the next supplicant. I mean, this guy's called the Reader. I think that says it all, even without that cool description. And he calls his sister Lanny as well. What a dude. This room that Asher finds him in also enters our top five most want-to-visit places in Westeros as well, especially with books written by Marwyn on hand. That in itself is a great connection to the beginning and ending of Feast. But there's this claim that Marwyn found three pages written down by Daenys Targaryen, the girl who predicted the doom, and is perhaps Daenerys' namesake, we're not sure. That seems Pretty important to have that kind of knowledge and experience when Marwyn is headed towards another young Targaryen woman destined to come west. So that really gets our mind working for what's coming in Winds of Winter, doesn't it? Asha spends a few moments very much building up to the image of being the cool kid once she arrives. She puts her feet up on the desk, she uses her dirk to clean her nails, she's just about a billion times smoother than her brother in every way. Although, Roderick is just as cool in my eyes for his book-focused rules. I can get where he's coming from. And all that is before she gets down to business. First, the almost confirmed question of what killed Balon, but then on to the larger issues. Where are all the allies that Asher needs? And Roderick gives her the answer that we know, and she didn't. The King's move. It goes to show how big this decision is, as well as the importance of timing. We learn that Aaron's idea has swept the islands and is being supported by the other priests and lords. And why not? Almost all lords dream of glory, and the King's move gives them a chance for it, however small the actual chance in reality. 
Besides, as Asher and Roderick both note, it's not like this type of thing is coming up often. This is a chance to be part of history. It works for the young, dreaming lords. It works for the old men who have no reason not to roll the dice and take a chance on getting out from underneath the Greyjoy boot that they've been under their entire lives. Of course, we know this is all just a setup for which Greyjoy will actually get the prize, and Asha clearly agrees. She's not bothered by the notion at all, and probably sees it as a much cleaner, less bloody route to victory. Also very important is Roderick pointing out he has no idea what Victarion or Euron are thinking. And that's important for not only our reading experience and keeping parts of the King's Moot as a surprise, but in terms of Asher still being very much out on the edge and not involved in everything going on in the Iron Islands. Again, timing is key. A quick quote here. You must lend me Harrig's book, Nuncle. She would need to learn all she could of King's Moots before she reached Old Wick. Again, as cool and teasing as Asher might be about her uncle's books, Asher knows the value of knowledge. It's also within this sequence we get that cool quote that I mentioned earlier. You are Balon's daughter, not his son. And you have three uncles. Four, Asher said. Damn, I love that line. Much as Asher is shrugging off Roderick's warnings, her care for him, Stuke, her care for him still comes through clear. Unfortunately, she is proving his point about the national obsession of kingship, or queenship in this case. Despite his sound advice on what they should actually be doing instead, Asher can't move past the title itself, despite the fact that she will later take his advice in terms of what the ultimate ironborn goal should be. Roderick's point that he's making here is essentially double-pronged. Asher's already chancy claim due to her gender has had the bottom taken out of it by the Kingsmoot and those hopes for glory. Asher being Balon's child will not outweigh her gender issue. That was that claim was already in doubt, but even more so now. But the second prong is even if she were to somehow win, what does that gain? She will still be destroyed and defeated eventually if she keeps to Balon's way of thinking. Thankfully, Asher does not intend to follow her father and recognises where he was wrong. So that's good, makes us like her even more. She isn't going after the old way or anything like that, and it also keeps up the tension with this promise of a third course that we really want to know about. Unfortunately, Asha makes us wait. Her attempt to goad Roderick into attending the King's Moot doesn't get under his skin at all. This is not an ego-ruled man, but he manages to break her cool exterior, however slightly, when switching the conversation to Alanis. Luckily, we don't linger too long on that sad tale, and instead switch to yet another family member, Theon. Theon is kind of a fascinating character at this moment in time, He's a real Schrodinger's ironborn. Does he exist or doesn't he? We don't know. For now, he's both. We haven't really spoke about him for, well, obviously, in Feast, really, or for most of the Storm of Swords, either. He's just been in limbo this whole time, really. He's not been seen for two whole books, and narratively, how long ago does the end of Clash actually seem, the fall of Winterfell? Now we're here, back in the land that we first visited in his mind, with characters we met through him, or that are connected to him in some way. Dawn's storyline lacks that. We never had that connection with Oberyn. So seeing this whole Ironborn storyline happen without him is kind of weird. He's mentioned a few times in Storm, like I say, especially in Anger by Rob, and he's supposedly still alive in the Dreadfall, but we've really got no idea about that as a first-time reader. Maybe he's dead, maybe he will re-enter the narrative and change all of this, maybe he won't. That's still very much another point of tension. There's a whole element that we've barely considered, and that's just in the political realm. What about the fact that we're talking about a son, and a brother, and a nephew here? It's an even tougher subject for Asher, Firstly, because she was the only one who really cared about Theon anyway, but also was the closest to him as he just flamed out. She had that final interaction at Winterfell that we mentioned earlier, when she tried to save him and had to eventually just leave him behind, knowing full well what it likely meant for his life. She tells us here that she went back after the battle to search the carnage, and imagine the hope she must have privately held in her heart, and then remember the scene she would have actually found with the burnt corpses and the dismembered after the walls have come corpses. That's a tough thing to bear. 
It's also important to remember Asher actually did that. She was the only character of note to visit Winterfell during its downtime of the storm feast kind of era. I always get obsessed with that kind of break that Winterfell takes, even though it's uh, so central to the overall story. But I talk about that enough in the Castles book, so I won't bother you with it here. Instead, another quote. We had one king, then five. Now all I see are crows squabbling over the corpse of Westeros. See, Roderick gets it. He's a smart guy. Books are good for your brain, kids. He also makes one final plea to keep his beloved niece safe away from the king's moot, this time offering her the inheritance of ten towers. It's a tempting offer, and far better than most daughters could hope to receive, especially from just an uncle. If Asha was a lesser soul, she might well have accepted. But as she tells us, she is a kraken. Not only does she believe she, that she deserves Pike and the Seastone Chair because of the fate of her brothers, she also believes that she is genuinely the best for the job, and it's really hard to disagree with her. Even if she can't see the sense in Roderick's warning, she's sticking to her soul and conviction. And by the way, note the description of the overall reach of the Harlors, their number and those forts that we mentioned earlier. They're an important bunch to have. You have to think this extra focus on them means they're going to be of importance later on in the series. I certainly hope so. Now back to Asher's interactions with other people, not necessarily family people, and who she cares for, we have another quote. Half of them loved her like a daughter, and the other half wanted to spread her legs. But either sort would die for her, and die for them. So that's another great one for seeing what truly matters to Asher. And speaking of these special relationships, we come to the final interaction of the chapter, Tristopher Botley. Triss is a lovesick fool who recognises how amazing Asher is, and really can't get her out of his head. Asher feels affection for the boy, but nothing overly serious, and we get a sense of how goddamn annoying it is for women who have to fend these kind of guys off all the time. To be sure, there are worse men than Tristan Botley around in Westeros, but we can see why his line of thinking and his attitude is annoying or vexing not just to Asher, but to all women. Before we focus on that too much, Tristan brings us some of our more specific Euron info yet, also giving a hint of what we'll see going forward. He first describes Euron's habit of redistributing titles and land. That's going to be a bigger factor once we get down to the Shield Islands and the Arbor. For now, the most relevant information is that he's buying that power. We've discussed the different ways the Krakens have been recruiting. Asher is relying on loyalty. Victorian will come to use his strength and victories. Aeron leans back on his religion and his ace in the hole, while Euron is going to amaze his assembled, small-minded lords with what he can bring them. That's exactly what he's going to do at the King's Moot, both in the immediate, when he spills out his many foreign treasures, and in the larger sense, when he promises dragons and the lands to the east and adventure. He knows what a terrible place the Iron Islands are in comparison to the rest of the world, and how easily he can put stars in the eyes of these lesser lords, thanks to that reduced boundary line. Most of them have never left the Iron Islands, or only really briefly for raids and such. Euron has gone all over the world, and it, it amazes them with this fact. We'll obviously see this in action when we finally meet Euron later, but it's good to get those hints in now. And here's a quote to back that up. Your uncle bought him, Triss said. The silence returned with holds full of treasure. Plate and pearls, emeralds and rubies, sapphires big as eggs, bags of coins so heavy that no man can lift them. The crow's eye has been buying friends at every hand. So, well, that's interesting enough, without the mention of magical monsters and wizards that's still to come, still to figure important. The remainder of the chapter is dedicated to showing us what a... a wet blanket Triss has been. Let's not knock him for his dedication to his love. As we said, Asher is a catch. There's no wonder he feels this way. There's also a cluelessness about him, almost something that matches him back to Pate in the prologue. A large part of obsession is the idea of her, There's the bypassing her worth as a person by going straight to her being a mother and talking about a betrothal, etc, etc. It goes on and on. 
Asher outgrew Triss in their teen years, whereas he seemingly stood still. He simply doesn't have the spirit for someone as strong as Asher. And she's kind about it. She cares for him. It's not like we have a Cersei type here who just would enjoy all the cruelties you could get out of it. But eventually, he goes too far. He's not listening. He's not seeing the reality of the human being in front of him. Instead of a walking poster that says girlfriend. And then he grabs her arm. It's something we've all seen a thousand well-meaning boys do. And something that's not only disrespectful, but can lead to very bad situations. So we have to cheer a little bit at what Asher does as soon as he does grab her. In a blink, her dirk was at his throat. Take your hand away, or you won't live long enough to breed a son. Now. Yes. Woohoo, yes, we like that. Let's keep that earth, Asher, please. I am your queen, not your wife. Remember that. Asher sheathed her dirk and left him standing there, with a fat drop of blood slowly creeping down his neck, black in the pale light of the moon. First off, just an amazing line, one of my favourite closes of the book. But we also get some major Daenerys vibes here, especially if we mention Sajora. Basically, Asha is an amazing badass and we love her, as this whole chapter is for showing off her entirely despite the fact we don't get another Asha POV until the next book, which is rubbish. Consider again the other single POVs that we meet, and we don't have to do half of the work. Arya Hotar is basically a bland camera in comparison to Asha. Ares will soon die after his lone chapter. Melisandre, alright, we already know pretty well, and can assume will continue into wins. Whereas the Kraken's daughter has to introduce Asha's inner self and surroundings while also keeping us interested until her three coming chapters in Dance. Asha becomes a major POV in the next book with an important storyline in the north of Stannis, so this chapter really is crucial. We only have to wait seven more chapters until we see Asha on page again, but like we say, her POV doesn't actually return for a whole damn book. So it's a good job this one is amazing, isn't it? Okay, farewell Asha, unfortunately we will see you again. Now let's move on to our second chapter of today with Cersei Free. Yes, we are back again, of course. A quick note that I realised on the frequency of Cersei chapters. I don't know if Aziz attends to keep us on four chapters a week for the entire book, although I assume that's the plan. But if we do, I've had a look. We will only have one week without having a Cersei chapter through the entire book. That's pretty incredible. And clearly, we've not come close to that kind of frequency before during this project. So get ready for lots of Cersei talk, basically. And for what it's worth, I did have a look. We'll only have three episodes about a Brienne chapter, but yeah, one time we're not going to be talking about Cersei, so I hope you like her. And here it goes with another one. Things are already moving quickly in King's Landing and in the whirlwind that is Cersei's arc. We really never get a rest in this book, and I think that's intentional. In Cersei 2, it was person after person, problem after problem, a whole river throwing itself right in Cersei's face the whole time. And that's really not going to stop. Even as she settles into her role and has the belief that she gains a bit more control, I think we know the reality, there will still be plot points coming up in every chapter just to, well, she thinks trying to vex her, but we know is actually a result of kind of her rule and her planning. And this chapter is no different. We're already at Tommen's wedding. It was only being brought up a mere chapter ago in terms of Cersei, but here we are, moving forward, moving quickly. Is this the earliest we see a wedding in any of the books? We're 12 chapters in here, so I believe so, but correct me if I'm wrong. And you might also correct me if I say this is the only wedding we actually get in Feast, the one we get on page anyway. There are more happening in the, in the background, but I think this is the only one we actually see, which is obviously a huge deviation from the, the spring season, the wedding season we had back in Storm. But again, correct me if I'm wrong. Let's have an opening quote here. She wanted a storm to match her rage. To Jocelyn, she said, Tighter, since it tighter, you simpering little fool. So, as we can see, Cersei has still not found her footing with rule. She's still enraged all the time, and she takes out on poor Jocelyn here. 
We also get one of our many hints about her weight gain. The dress won't quite fit. And we can probably see the reason why, because she happens to ditch breakfast for some more wine instead in a moment. She also gives us a rundown of the many, many enemies facing the crown still. Still Stannis and the Tyrells and everyone else. She likes to attribute all her mistakes or difficulties to these men, because clearly, if they weren't around, everything would be perfect, and Cersei would have ultimate, unchallenged power. I think she genuinely believes that. It's everyone else's fault, not hers, basically. But quite quickly within this chapter, we're already into it. We're already with everyone at the wedding and we get first of our many Olena digs on Cersei that we'll see in this chapter. We have it here. She is the boy's own mother, after all. Of that, we are all sure. Haha, <laughs> yes, yes, we like Olena. So Cersei's getting beaten down bit by bit. And to be fair, she is right about the Tyrells using Tommen in this instance. She's starting to complain about them getting their claws in and, well, she's not wrong. Marjorie might not use the same bedtime charm she would have if Tom were a bit older, but a young boy is still going to be pretty enamoured with sharing his bed with several older girls, even without the sexual element. He will still be recipient of their whispers and their games. He will certainly come to be fond of them. We know he's going to drift ever closer to Camp Marjorie through this book, so this is a big step, and Cersei is at least aware that even if she can't do anything about it yet. But leaving the Tyrells for a second, we get this whole thing about the Tower of the Hand, and we have a few quotes for you here. Here's the first. Do you still mean to go ahead and burn the Tower of the Hand? So hello, straight away, that gets our attention, doesn't it? This is a major part of the Song of Ice and Fire lore here. This is a major building. We've seen Ned there, Sansa there, Aya there, Tyrion, obviously. Everything historical we've had since in Fire and Blood and everything. Those major moments are the ending of Storm with Tyrion. It's a major, major place. It's about to go down and be erased. And it just it just kind of pops up. What? Hang on. You're going to burn down the Tower of the Hand? Okay, that's new. This has never happened to the Red Keep. This has never had a part of it destroyed, as far as we know. But then again, that's an interesting question, isn't it? First part of the Red Keep to be burnt? Is it going to be the last? Hmm, yeah. Well, we might have some uh, ideas about that. Here's the next quote. They had found a chamber full of skulls and yellowed bones, and four sacks of tarnished silver coins from the reign of the first King Viserys. We'll clearly never know who these bones belong to. Um, personally, I'm just hoping it is not Varys's little birds. We do specify that a lot of the tunnels that they found were child-sized. Remember all the way back in Game of Thrones, where we wondered what happened to the little birds as they got older? Okay, let's not talk about that too much. Here's another kind of creepy quote. And two guardsmen vanished exploring a side tunnel. Some of the other guards swore they could hear them calling faintly through the stone. Okay, well, yeah, that's an image, isn't it? Makes you think of, uh, is it Gorn's way? Gendal's way? Gorn's children? The thing at the wall. Yeah, it's just a bit, ugh. And we're assuming whether those poor men are alive or dead by now, they're going to get burned up later on. Now, obviously, this whole interaction about the Tower of the Hand is between Cersei and Jaime, and these and these interactions we're getting with them both are so critical and so valuable because they're not going to be together that long, so we need to pay attention where they are. And this one is really important. Here's another quote from it. So long as Tommen sits the Iron Throne, the realm sees him as the true king. Unfortunately, Tommen might not be on that Iron Throne all that long, but Jaime sees things better than Cersei does. He's bringing up this point because he understands the greater uh, optics of rule, where Cersei thinks she does, but she probably doesn't. Even here, she tries to save face by claiming that she knew that already. Yes, yes, I know, you're saying things I already know. But, well, does she? Because she's talking about moving him from Cassidy Rock, which would probably be quite a bad idea. It would leave the door open for someone to just come and sit on the Iron Throne, and we already know how big these symbols, like the Iron Throne, or crowns or swords, are for rule. And I think the Iron Throne is probably the biggest of them all. So that would be a very bad idea from Cersei there, unless Jamie corrects her. Here's another quote. Jamie. Now you sign like Ares. Yeah, this suggestion about wildfire, even if it's being used in a contained 
manner to burn down a specific part, it must put acid in Jamie's stomach. He gave up everything to stop the wildfire, and now it's here anyway. And that feeling is only going to grow when he actually sees Cersei watching the flames. He'll compare her more and more to the Mad King as he realises what she truly is. She also has this dream of building a new city across the river. Now we know from the world book that Ares had similar ambitions. It's not the strongest of connections, but it's all starting to add up, isn't it? It's all just starting to push us more to thinking, oh yeah, she is a bit like him, isn't he? Or maybe not even us, but Jamie is definitely thinking that. Another quote from Jamie here. I love you too, sweet sister. And then Cersei thinks, how could I have ever have loved that wretched creature? She wondered after he had gone. He was your twin, your shadow, your other half, another voice whispered. Once, perhaps, she thought, no longer. He has become a stranger to me. So that's ironic, isn't it? Because we know Jamie is seeing Cersei becoming more like Ares, and that's driving him further away, where, while at the same time, Cersei is having similar thoughts about the loss of her brother. And the use of the word stranger there is interesting, because he could eventually visit her as the stranger, the one who brings death. So I like that connection. Cersei also accuses him of losing all of his wits when he lost his hand, when we've really seen that he's actually come up for air and into reality with that loss, while Cersei remains beneath the waves of Lannister pride. Moving back to the Tyrells, Olenna wins again. She gets another point regarding the cloak and the argument of which one Tommen should be wearing. It was accepted with Joffrey, probably because the Tyrells knew how little they could push Tywin. Not so with Cersei. They can get away with a lot more. And Cersei, she keeps promising a revenge that never really comes. Personally, it makes me laugh that she wears black. And like with her previous chapter, Cersei's focus on her own and others' clothing is definite. We opened with her being unaware about her own changing shape. She has this black dress on for a wedding. And then she gets annoyed that Jamie is in white again. She does the same for Marjorie, despite the fact that I mean, it is her wedding day. So white makes sense. But she's angry at that. Keep watch later for Elena getting another zinger in about the reigns of Castamir. She clearly enjoys herself in this chapter. She has a whale of a time. Cersei has this to think about them. The more we give these Tyrells, the more they demand of us. That just makes me think of John and Stannis and the King quote. That's quite funny there. Cersei sees Kevin chatting with Garland Tyrell and immediately thinks he must be in cahoots with them. As far as I remember, this never turns into anything. We don't find that he is actually in connection with them at all. Kevin merely has a decent working relationship with the Tyrells in his epilogue and nothing else. This is probably just innocent chit-chat at this time, but I'd love it if Kevin were doing it purely because he knows how much it would mess with Cersei's head. He knows what will annoy her, so he's going to go and do it, even though there's no other reason. So the main event of this chapter, the wedding, that comes and it goes, and this time no one dies. Tommen survives his wedding. Joffrey didn't. Lysa didn't live long past hers. And okay, it wasn't Rob or Catelyn's wedding, but they both died. So well done Tommen and Marjorie, I guess, and everyone else there for surviving a wedding. That is quite the feat. Here's another quote for you. Westeros has two queens now, and the young one is as beautiful as the old one, boomed Lyle Crakehall, an oath of a knight, who oft reminded Cersei of her late and unlamented husband. She could have slapped him. Okay, harsh to hear for her, being called the old queen, but quite funny for us, isn't it? When she actually talks to Uncle Kevin, she gets an important update, and this in, this one's quite interesting for us. Here's the quote. Varga Hote's scum remain abroad, and Beric Dondarrion has been hanging phrase. Is it true that Sandor Cleganus joined him? How does he know that? Some say, reports are confused. So this is the first we hear about Sandor Cagain, other than the memories of Sansa and Aya, but the first suggestion that he might still be alive and doing evil deeds. This is going to come up later today in Brienne's chapter as well. And it's actually really important for Brienne's arc, isn't it? Salt pans, which is what we're talking about here, hangs over the whole book. It's a terrible casualty of war. But really, it's Brienne's journey that's going to come closest to that. And you have to consider, remember, as, as first-time readers, we didn't know the truth about the Hound. We'll have to wait a long time to discover 
what is apparently the truth. We still don't actually have that confirmed yet. But it's an interesting question, isn't it, on whether he could have turned this bad after his Aya interactions. We like to believe no, but broken men do roam. So, hmm, who knows? First-time readers still have to wonder at this point. And it's also tough to remember we didn't know that Beric was dead by this point. It's also very, very easy to forget. So quite a lot for first-time readers to take on there. We have this quote about Sandor. When a dog goes bad, the fault lies with his master. So that's quite ironic. This is Kevin saying this, by the way. That's quite ironic for him to say that, given Tywin and Greyhawk again. I think Kevin is probably trying to just get another mothering jab in. Like Cersei thinking she... And I like that Cersei is daft enough to think that she actually has a point up on her uncle and that he's regretting their last conversation in her former chapter due to her naming of other Westerlands people for, you know, the big roles. But really, she has no clue on his feelings. She's got no way to connect with him. He's focused on Lancel for now, but she can't see that. She just thinks, well, I would be annoyed if other people were getting named Castle and Warden of the West. So Kevin must be, but we know better. Post-wedding and at the feast, we have another little interaction between brother and sister. And well, this is the quote. It certainly changed you and not for the better. I love you too, sweet sister. So that's the second time that Jamie uses that reply in this chapter. And Cersei, she's just kind of outright terrible to Jamie in this chapter in terms of insulting his hand. And why? Why is that? Simply because he won't give her what she wants. He isn't outright going against her or trying to steal Tommen or anything like that. He just isn't falling in line. And after a lifetime of having him do exactly that, Cersei is throwing yet another tantrum. She doesn't know how to deal with him because before it's basically been, look, if I take my dress off, will you do this? And he'll say yes. And that's not working anymore. So it's really, really just confusing for her. And she's, yeah, getting angry about it. It's also the second time we see her just wanting to slap everybody. She's just hating everyone around her in this chapter. And, well, here's a good example. Here's another quote for you. A dashing young cockawoop clad in all shades of azure who called himself the Blue Bard. Oh dear. Yes, uh-oh. The victim list is growing. This is yet another person who we know as rereaders is going to end up on the wrong side of Kyburn. In fact, this is the victim we see the most of post-torture and it is not a pretty sight, so... Oh good, we have that to look forward to, don't we? Just setting the seeds for that. Now we get an even more important quote as Cersei thinks on the reasons why she hates and why she is this way. Queen you shall be, the old woman had promised, with her lips still wet and red and glistening, until there comes another, younger and more beautiful, to cast you down and take all that you hold dear. Wow, okay, so that's a pretty huge moment to get that. This huge part of the guiding mantra that Cersei follows, the, the road that she pushes down on her life. Everything makes more sense now. Rereaders know how far Straylis will actually lead her later on instead of just focusing on reality. But for Cersei, she kind of had these blinkers on and in this. And for Cersei, she's focusing on Marjorie. She thinks this is the younger, beautiful queen that's going to come. For us readers, well, we've already seen Cersei spend a lot of time with Sansa. We can fit here and there. We know Daenerys is already a powerful queen. There's plenty of Brienne chit-chat to have. But I don't think we should discount that this is brought up a mere chapter before we also have Ariane's own beauty described really really described to us as well i tend to like the idea that instead of just one young queen all of them will end up replacing cersei in one way or another we'll have to see won't we there's a note that balon swan is the king's guard positioned by the king loris by the queen that's smart keep the best ones by Tommen and his queen it brings up this idea of prince aemon the dragon knight and nares another king's guard queen brother sister combo which is going to come up in the next chapter of Ares. And later on, Cersei will look upon Loras and Marjorie as twins more than mere siblings, 
which is setting the stage for her incest idea later on. And again, that obviously relates to Eamon and Neri. So we've got some good connections coming here and in the next chapter. We do have to feel for Cersei, and Jamie too, to a lesser extent, when Tommen coughs. Imagine that as a mother who has been through what Cersei's been through. She actually handles it pretty well, I think. I think a lot of people would have handled that way, way worse when thinking, oh, it's happening again. It's my son, I'm going to lose him. But instead, she just has to take a quick step out and have a little cry. So well done, Cersei, for you. But it's during this stepping out that we meet Taina Merriweather again. Assumedly, she was keeping a pretty tight eye on her target. Taina mentions her son immediately, perhaps giving Cersei a reason to trust her as a fellow mother, maybe as an explanation for her motivation, which is the what Cersei selects and gets out of this, maybe because she's being genuine and is trying to better her son's lot in life. Either way, she fingers Sennel as a spy, effectively sentencing the poor girl to Kyburn's depravity, so yet more on the victim list. That won't happen yet, but it's coming, thanks to this clearly cutthroat woman. She's got no issues with it. Yeah, sure, send her away. And she might even be true. Sennel might really be a spy, but think about how quick Cersei is to make this decision. She's not going to do any investigating, made to get no trials. Cersei wants to believe that everyone is against her, so a suggestion is all that's needed. Yeah, that's very oh dear, that's not a good sign, is it? Still, it is a good technique to get in Cersei's good books. Many suspect this is actually what the Tyrells are doing to Cersei by planting their Tainer seed. And I could see, yeah, I could definitely see that. And again, at the end of this conversation, we get very physically focused comments on teeth and lips and smell, more than Cersei normally has for other women. So we're setting the scene for what's coming up later. In a moment, we're going to move outside for the end of the chapter. Just before we go, some really quick notes for you here just on this feast scene. A quote for you, first off. I will need to sweep them all away and surround the king with mine own people. Oh dear, what could have been? We talked about it last chapter. If she had actually utilised Jamie, if she had actually kept Kevin on side, this could have been a decently ruled country. Unfortunately, Cersei is going to go for this option instead, which is terrible for everyone. She's going to put her own people in place on the merit that she chose them, and that's pretty much it. She chose them, which makes them better than anyone, regardless of credential or ability. Hmm. That's not the uh, the best line of thinking for management, isn't it? And again, she also compares Tommen to Joffrey, this time for dancing. Of all the things you could pick out about Joffrey, Cersei wants to focus on his ability as a dancer. Oh, I wish Tommen was a better dancer like his brother, even if it did mean he was an absolute psychopath. I just want to see a better dancer. We also get our first Orain Walter sighting. I think it's our first anyway. And with that comes memories of Rhaegar, much like we had with Jamie last week. So that's quite a cool little uh, note there. And speaking of Jamie. Cersei refuses to play the game regarding dancing. Everyone else is getting up and dancing with everybody, making these connections, playing the game, schmoozing, if you will. Cersei, no, I'm not having any of that. And that's where we get these really horrible lines to Jamie about his hand. But let's move on to the conclusion of the chapter and going outside for basically a bonfire. And Helene, he's back on the scene. The fact that Cersei mixes being drunk while watching the flames and probably some sexual appetite too with a wildfire is another big connection to Ares for Jamie. Here's a quote. He is beautiful, she thought. As beautiful as Joffrey when they laid him in my arms. All right, yeah, that's a good comparison. I'll get on, I'll get on with that. Wildfire plus Joffrey. Joffrey was pretty wild and evil as well. Wildfire seems to do that exact same trick. Now Cersei gives us the reasons why she is burning down the Tower of the Hand, but I think it's also an attempt to say goodbye to Tywin and obviously Tyrion's reign in favour of her room. She wants to say, the men are gone from my family. I am in charge now. Let's get rid of this building and start over. She even includes some of Tyrion's possessions as kindling, just as, a, you know, an extra petty sort of revenge. Now, it doesn't specify what's included, 
but I'm going to bet there's some rare and valuable books in this little bonfire. And that, that's rubbish. Now, obviously, in this final scene, there is lots of foreshadowing for future wildfire, Cersei, King's Landing, burning triangles in the future. Remember, we also get that dreaming of the new city, and she wanted a storm to match her rage at the Red Keep in this chapter opening. She's not fond of the place, so there might be foreshadowing too. She's bringing wildfire, that storm included wanting sleet and ice, and for all we know, that might be coming eventually as well. Now, to close, I don't want to think about Cersei, I want to think about Jamie, because this is a nasty ending for Jamie. He sees Cersei watching the fire, he's having all these thoughts about the Mad King and everything he gave up his life for, essentially. Is the worst part of his life is now mixing with what was the best part of his life. And not only that, but she's doing it arm in arm with Osmond Cattleblack, who we know Jamie already has some bad feelings about thanks to Tyrion. So this it's just eating away. We know the feeling. He sees this from afar. He doesn't get to do anything about it. He's just got to go and sit now in, in Thomas' bedroom with Marjorie and the, the other girls and just wonder what else is going on elsewhere in the castle. He gets to guard the king while Osmond does something quite different with the queen we imagine. That's a nasty, nasty experience for Jamie. But let's move on. That is second chapter of the day. We're halfway through. Let's move on to our third chapter. A very different type of chapter is Ares Oakheart slash The Soiled Knight. Now, a tough name because we've just been talking about Ares the Mad King and now we're talking about, is it Ares or Aris? Mm, I might go with Aris. Aris Oakheart. Yeah, let's go with Aris. So is this the most unguessable POV prior to a book? I suppose Eriohotar actually takes that biscuit as we literally had no idea he existed. But Aris isn't far behind. If we frame that question as what known character is going to become a POV in this next book, let's imagine we had that prior to Feast, I really doubt many of us are coming up with the answer of Aris Oakheart. Even if George told you it was going to be called the Soiled Knight, I'm thinking we'd have at least 10 guesses before we got to Aris. That could be a name for Jamie, for Barristan, for Sandor, for Merin, for Boros, for Loras for, I don't know, a fray. There you go, that's nearly 10, isn't it? Let's refresh. How many times have we actually spoken about Sir Aris Oakheart so far in this project without referring to the fact that we eventually know this plot of his is coming? If we disregard the fact that we knew that, how, how much has he actually figured in this story? Off the top of my head, I can only remember one conversation, when Sansa was at her worst in King's Landing during A Clash of Kings. We noted that Aris was among the Kingsguard who struck her on command, but that he did argue the point. Sansa herself notes that, just as she notes that he did hit her in the end. So, Aris hit a teenage girl because his teenage king told him so. Basically, this knight became soiled long before he ever clapped eyes on Ariane Martel. In fairness, yes, it is good that he objected to the order. It's better than some of the other king's guard. And it was rather brave. Even at that point in time, Aris must have realised what they had in Joffrey and that such an act could mean a painful death. But he still did it. He was polite and courteous to Sansa as well. Okay, great. But that's it. Being the best of a bunch of child hitters isn't a great best of to be, is it? We mentioned at the time that no one did any more resisting than he, save Sandor again, but then Sandor never actually got commanded to hit her, if I remember correctly. So it's a dodgy error with some fit context, but there's a bottom line that trumps everything else. Eris Oakheart physically abused a young girl. He broke the oaths of knighthood. If only someone like Brienne could get a hold of him and teach him what it actually means to be a knight, unfortunately not. Other than that, we really have nothing of note from him. Did a name search and it reveals only five mentions in a Game of Thrones, none of them noteworthy, except that it is he who escorts Sansa to make us hold fast when Cersei's coup begins. We could argue about how much she knew of that plan, but either way, that doesn't look great on the CV either, does it? In Clash, he gets 13 mentions, most of it from Sansa's opening chapter with the interaction we just spoke about. 
about him resisting but eventually obeying and probably 90% of the background info we ever get on Aris is in that chapter. Sansa describes him as good looking, we learn that he's confident slash arrogant in his tourney abilities with regards to Joffrey's name day tourney and that he's a bit of a court gossip. So basically he is Mr Reach isn't he? He looks the part chivalry rise but actually prefers the use of whispers and celebrity culture. The Reach is the birthplace of chivalry we're going to con we're going to cover that a lot during these books and this chapter. So yeah, that makes sense that he is fairly representative of the idea of the Reach. Other than that, he gets a mere two mentions in Storm of Swords. And that is only ever in relation to his role as Marcella's Sworn Shield. No one's actually talking about him, the person. So how do I do my beloved chapter frequency thing here? As a chapter and as a POV character, Aris is completely unique. Excluding those as prologue or epilogue characters, he is the lone POV who will ever only receive one chapter. We kind of spoke about it earlier. Probably, anyway. So far, we also have Melisandre in A Dance of Dragons with just one POV, but I think we can agree she's 95% certain to receive at least one more in Winds and maybe beyond. Asha and Ario also have one in this book, but topped up in Dance like we discussed. With George announcing there will be no new POVs and everyone else already having at least one, obviously, it seems Aris will be forever alone as our lone POV man. How much does that play into this chapter being so severely disliked? That is the impression I get anyway from the fandom from discussions. This chapter, eh, well, it comes up often as the least liked. We have to consider it a factor, I believe. Our prologue and epilogue characters are all one-timers as well, but generally they have much, much stronger plot points and characterization as well. Perhaps that is not a strong point for Aris. Which brings up an interesting question that I'm sure has been asked before. Why did George not just give this chapter over to Ariane and start her plot earlier? For the most part, I'd say it's the slower reveal of Ariane's plan to crown Marcella, but we've already been introduced to that concept and could still have this essential same conversation. I think it's more likely that George first wanted to really see Ariane through the eyes of a hot-blooded man. Because, okay, yes, we have met her through Ario Hotar, but he does not see her as most of the world would. Also, George just really likes writing about knights. That's really, that's his bag. And knights who are guilty, who struggle with oaths. Come on, that's right in his wheelhouse. That is George's favourite thing. Apparently, he wasn't getting his fix with Jamie and Brienne, and he didn't want to wait for Barristan. So let's slip one in here. There's a more chance for history notes for Aris's POV. And I think George quite likes writing in the frame of someone being manipulated over the frame of someone doing the manipulating. We've already had a similar conversation about Pate, and this chapter specifically quite reminds me of Fionn's gem of Edsquid back in Clash that we also mentioned earlier. And again, like we've just mentioned, there also seems to be quite a realignment with the Reach in this book, and Aris just slots right into that, doesn't he? True, we very quickly visited Britterbridge in Clash of Kings with Catelyn, but really, we've never been there until this book. Other than the Westerlands, it's our least visited place in Westeros now that we've become acquainted with Dawn. Consider, we go from that lone Catelyn trip to having Old Town in the prologue, Victarion raiding the Shield Islands, Old Town again in Sam's last chapter, plus having plenty of Reach-linked forts for not only Sam, but Brienne as well. She goes there in her memories. Plus, we finally meet Randall Tarley later on today, as well as the Tyrells and the other Reach bannermen becoming bigger and bigger deals in King's Landing. Now we have Aris thinking about his history as an Oakheart and the large rivalry of Dawn. I think it's all part of a build-up for the Reach to feature heavily going forward. Obviously, with whatever Euron's going to do, but also with the friends in the Reach idea. So, again, Aris slots right in. I think it's also important that we get it in his POV just to make his eventual end that much more concrete and set up. Ariane could still muse on Eris's motivations afterwards, but we know a lot more having it this way, and I think it works. I think it's the correct choice. But regardless, it's certainly an odd one and certainly a unique chapter. 
but bypassing the fact that Aris sticks out to us, we also get a much better look at the Shadow City and Dawn. We get further information on Marcella, and we crucially learn about Quentin and there being further Dawnish plots to unravel. So it's a very exciting, very important chapter, which I personally don't mind. You might think different, I can see why you do, but it's fine with me. So let's get going with it, shall we? So once we go over the initial huh, of this being Ares' chapter, we start off in a place of danger and intrigue. We have our hackles up immediately. Our knight is clearly doing something he's not supposed to, and he's doing it in a dangerous place. There's a connection to the streets of Marine, both in climate and in danger, which also follows up on the boiling of the Shadow City streets, as we learned about with Aria. We can really connect that to what's going on at night in Marine, can't we? From there, we go straight into the historical reach stuff, as Aris thinks through his family's tapestries, which, oddly enough, only ever seem to depict the oak hearts or the reach being victorious against Dawn, something we know isn't quite true from our actual histories. We also have a mention of Olivar Oakhart, a former Kingsguard himself, but really it's just pointing out that Eris is doubly unwelcome here. Save for one of the Lannisters walking through the street, there's almost no one as unwelcome in Dawn as he. We could even triple it up with the fact he's a Kingsguard. Yes, he's a Kingslander, yes, he's a Reachman, but he's also a Kingsguard and they are not well liked. Lewin Martell joined their ranks, sure, but historically they fought against the Kingsguard for years, and Lewin died anyway as one of them, instead of with his family, and they collectively, or Jamie specifically, failed to protect Elia and her children. A fair few citizens might even mix up which Clegane was responsible for Elia's death. Wasn't there recently a, a hound on the Kingsguard, after all, or a dog? Hmm. Indeed, Lewin, Martell and Arthur Dane were the only Dornish Kingsguard ever, so far as we know. So, yeah, pretty unwelcome. And he himself expands on that with his suspicion of the Dornish. But note that Duran has been successful in dampening the situation at least a little bit by imprisoning the Sand Snakes, letting us know that Duran does know his stuff, he is right. Eris also talks about feeling naked without his cloak. We know from multiple conversations about John and Jamie and others about how important cloaks are for identity, so this is nothing new. But George also keeps up our interest by the introduction of a mysterious her. Yes, this is what we referenced earlier. There's a her. Who is this her? Who is she supposed to be? For first-time readers doing some investigative reading, Ariane is still our most likely being the only female we know of other than the imprisoned sand snakes, but so far, still pretty hard to guess. As he continues his walk through the city, we get a few paragraphs on Dornish culture, and basically we just improve the Shadow City as a setting. We see snake chunks being roasted, and we talk about how spicy the food is, and it's another way to separate Ares and put him out of place. We already have these hints at Eris' weakness of the particular dirt on his white cloak because we've got him thinking about a woman that he's going to meet. He sees one in the street and he gets a bit flustered looking at her as well. So I think we're getting hints of what his particular vice might be. So, okay, he's not doing well in Dawn, but Marcella, she is flourishing apparently. And that's lovely to hear, isn't it? Because we already know she's great. She's cool. And okay, things are going to get worse for Tommen and unfortunately worse for Marcella as well. But at least she's been doing well since we last saw her. We can take... What joy we can in that. We also, when we're talking with Marcella, get the introduction of Savas. And again, I'm sure we all pronounce that differently, but I'm going with Savas. That's going to be big for Ariane and for Tyrion and Dance. It's going to be a big part of the book going forward. Obviously, George kind of fell in love with it. For what it's worth, Savas itself gets way more mentions than Ares ever does, or Aris, sorry. And it's a good way to show that Marcella is smart. She's interesting. She's, you know, she's the best of the candidates, which we'll come to later on. We're going to need a reintroduction of her, but she was great before, and it turns out she still is. But it's going to have a hard road to go as she joins her brother in becoming a commodity. Yeah, we're going to come to that more in Ariane's chapter. And speaking of the Martell princess, we get another hint that she is the object. She is the focus of this chapter. 
when Ares blushes when he thinks of her. But before he gets there, he has this flashback to his conversation with Duran. And here's a quote. My mother taught me long ago that only madmen fight wars they cannot win. So that's, that sums up Duran pretty well, doesn't it? Considering the years and years of planning and patience he's put into his approach, his mother obviously had a clear influence on him and his strategy and just his philosophy, his way of thinking. <sighs> Damn, I wish we knew more about Mrs. Martell. Maybe one day, not yet. But in this flashback conversation, it seems the Sand Snakes are so influential or Oberyn was so beloved that Duran knows his imprisoning of them is more of a timekeeper than a solution. It's not just going to wipe away all their problems. It also goes to show he really did listen to the Sand Snakes. He knows what a target Marcella is going to be at some point or another. And he does not want another Rainies as he connects the two princesses here. Is there an element of not risking basically the most important hostage you have? Yes, of course. But also, Duran clearly does not wish any harm upon little Marcella. At least, yeah, that's what I want to take it as. Duran also gives a faint smile when Ares declares his confidence in his abilities, perhaps signalling that he has analysed this night and come to the same conclusion as Ariohotar. Duran might be similarly pleased when Ares doesn't even really question the order to not let Cersei know about the moves to the water gardens. It's pretty key information, information that Cersei would be incensed not to hear, but Ares barely gives it a thought, and in some ways maybe it's lucky for him that he meets his end instead of having to go back to Cersei and explain why he didn't tell her all these things. Eris comes to the end of his little journey and yet still the mystery of who he's going to meet is kept. Even when he enters the room and we have our very full-on description of Ariane, she is being referred to as the woman at the beginning. And as for that description, well, it's not hard to see why Eris has found himself so tested and why he cannot resist her. She's not only a beautiful woman, but one who knows her way around her own passion. Though Eris is wearing a tunic instead of his cloak, I think it's symbolic that that clothing is ripped as they yeah, get down to it. Here's a quote. A dragon might have been peering in the window, and I would never have seen anything but her breasts, her face, her smile. Why don't we go in full-on theory mode and wonder if some glass candle has actually watched this act, or someone has a vision or memory thing. Yeah, yeah, that's probably too far, but still, I just like the quote. Once past the act itself, Eris gains some rather sharp clarity, sharp of his guilt, unfortunately. The following conversation sounds like one that's been had before, as Eris comes down hard on himself as a way to pay back for his crimes, while declaring that they are done, it will never happen again, he will have the strength to resist this time round. Basically, what every addict ever will tell you. Even as he says these statements and thinks these self-loathing thoughts, he is already focusing on Ariane's body again. And this is where everything falls into place and we can really connect the clues. Here's a quote. Unless she is a sand snake. If so, we can share you. I love my cousins well. Okay, that's pretty much all we know to confirm this is Ariane he's talking about. And even if this bypasses you, she starts referring to Duran as her father in a second, so the cat's out of the bag, we know who's here. And we can see her already working on tempting Eris further. She's already planted the suggestion of having her plus a sand snake. There's the promise of future lessons. The suggestion that he cherishes Marcella more than her, thereby making him want to prove himself. And the idea that he will soon lose access to her when he's at the water gardens, and therefore should give himself over entirely while he still has the chance. Remember what her ultimate goal is in this chapter, getting him to completely jump ship and sign on to her plan with Marcella. So she needs to pull out all the stops and create an idea is have her now or have nothing ever again. Even if he wasn't a Kingsguard, you get the idea he's been ruined for any future woman. He's just under the spell. Well done, Ariane, in that regard. There's almost an element of Tristra Botley in this conversation, more with Aris just being a bit clueless about Ariane's honour and his need to protect her in that way. This entire meeting really just shows everything going over his head while he continues to hang it in shame. And between almost every sentence is some thought or sight or stirring that shows how utterly powerless he actually is with Ariane. I don't think there's ever any actual doubt about the conclusion, even at this point in the chapter. 
It's an interesting tactic to see on the page though. It's not like Seduction is new in the series, we've just never been so up close or with anyone as talented as Ariane. And it's worth us noting what Ariane's investment is in all of this. To her, it's everything. It's vengeance for her uncle, it's freeing her cousins, it's claiming her birthright, it's the state of all Dawn, the future of Dawn. Hence why she's taking care to really get him on board. We should also mention that while she is using Aris here, she does also have genuine feelings for him. Not quite what he feels for her, and again that draws comparisons to Asher and Triss, doesn't it? But still, there are feelings there. Nothing can ever be so clear-cut as just straight up using him. George is too complex for such, he knows how to write these characters. Ariane continues to run verbal rings around Aris. He feels she accuses him of only being concerned about his own honour. He thinks she's being genuine about sending gifts to the war gardens. She suggests maybe all of his kind words were lies, and for a man already obsessed with his honour and guilt there is nothing worse to hear. So again, circles, just dancing circles, and he's so zoned in on her body and passion that he really can't even comprehend what's going on here. I swore a vow, not to wed or father children. Well, I have drunk my moon tea, and you know I cannot marry you. I just include that because that's some Nightwatch thinking there, isn't it? The, the way you can get past the small print, basically. She also teases him about making him her paramour. Now, we know this is an established practice because we've already met Alaria, but I wonder on the history of Dawn if there have been instances of rulers, either prince or princess, taking people of office as their official paramours. Now, it's different if it's just, uh, you know, someone at court or something like that. But if it's someone actually with an official role, you can see that causing all sorts of issues, can't you? They don't have king's guard, but they do have official guards and captains, etc. So you'd think that this maybe has come up at some point. We get a hint of something similar in a few pages when Ariane talks of Lewin taking a paramour. Now, it's not quite the same, but you see the issue that could arise. Either way, while we're talking of history, George, again, uses the opportunity to lay some fire and blood groundwork. Some rather specific groundwork this time around. But I'm more interested in Aris's thought on the present. Here's a quote. So Boris Blount was no stranger to the Street of Silk. And so Preston Greenfield used to call it a certain draper's house whenever the draper was away. But Aris would not shame his sworn brothers by speaking of their failings. But this is Boris is a bit surprising, isn't it? You wouldn't think he'd have the motivation to bother. It seems like he's too lazy for any of that. But the story of Sir Preston is even better. That's the most interesting thing we ever hear about him. It's basically the only personal thing we ever hear of uh, Preston Greenfield. Unfortunately, that is the last time we'll hear that particular name, which I guess is something new we're going to have to get used to as we go through these books that... Some of these storylines and these little twists just end now. Interestingly, Eris doesn't even think of Jamie when considering Kingsguard who have a wandering eye. Is that because Cersei and Jamie really did do a good job of covering up? But then again, the rumours persist, doesn't it? So does it just pass over Eris's head or is he really just that loyal to his law commander? Who can say? Next quote. I will not be remembered as Sir Eris the Unworthy, he declared. I will not soil my cloak. Okay, pretty good lines, considering the chapter title. And it also starts giving us big hints to his mindset in Ariane's next chapter of what happens, you know, at the end of that. Another quote, this time from Ariane. It is not our love that has dishonoured you. It is the monsters you have served and the brutes you've called your brothers. Okay, Ariane, cut into the core. We like this. This is much more interesting and much closer to the discussion that we had at the top about Aris with Sansa and having to obey Joffrey. Yes, yes, he argued, but he still did the deed. That's what's important. That's why Aris focuses so heavily on these, let's call them interactions, with Ariane, because it's a lot more cool to focus on your weakness of sleeping with a beautiful woman than it is remembering the time you hit a defenseless girl. Aris admits his shame here, but that's different to admitting it when it's specifically brought up and how you go about your daily life. Yes, it is nice that Aris was thankful when he got shipped out and no longer had to serve Joffrey. You can almost view it as a reverse Jamie situation with Ares. When the rebellion came to a head, all the King's Guard were shipped out away from the Mad King, save for Jamie. In that way, and bringing it back to Aris, we can view the Kingsguard and their oaths as a kind of bondage. You sometimes get trapped where you don't want to be. 
but does it not make it even worse that Aris is aware of how evil he was being and still obeyed? This complicated question is a really complex discussion to have, but either way, he doesn't normally come out looking too good, does he? So while we've got this constant power dynamic, well, it's not even a dynamic, is it? It's really just Darianne running the show. But we return to the topic of Marcella. She's slowly brought back into the focus as Ariane makes her way to basically making her bargain at the end. Here's a quote about young Marcella. The truth was, the princess was braver than her brother, and brighter and more confident as well. Her wits were quicker, her courtesies more polished. Nothing ever daunted her, nor even Joffrey. The women are the strong ones, truly. So I include that because it's nice for Marcella to actually get her due for once. And as I've mentioned before, Tommen versus Marcella, which is what the conversation is turning to now, that is truly one of my favourite subplots of this book and of Dance as well. And it's something I'm really looking forward to see progress, even if I am concerned about the eventual result for both of them. Regardless, as both Aris and Ariane attest to here, Marcella is the much better candidate of the two children. And that's not a knock against Tommen, he's a great kid with a kind soul. He just doesn't have the required characteristics that his sister does. The heartbreaker is that Tommen and Marcella generally love each other, making them a basic enigma in the Lannister Baratheon family. Somehow, amongst all that family hate and drama, they forge this relationship where they actually like each other, beaten all the odds. Yet, they will be pitted against one another through no fault of their own. It's hard to think of a bigger comment on not just the playing of the game, but also the foolishness of male inheritance being put for not just age, but more importantly, suitability. Dawn is far from perfect, but we shouldn't ignore that they are clearly ahead of Westeros in some respects. And Aerys's naming of many strong women he has seen fits into our earlier note about a female-driven Feast of Crows, and I like that this is the first time he actually refers to Ariane by her full name, with her title thrown in there for good measure. We step again back through history, this time to the Dance of the Dragons and to Kristen Cole. Many have written or talked extensively about the importance of that particular character and how he relates to our current series, so I won't go on about it too much. But he does relate strongly to Jamie, to Barristan, and yes, to Ares's upcoming decision here as well, so important to get him included. Another quick quote here. So Aris frowned. The big Novosha captain with the scarred face had always made him feel profoundly uneasy. So it seems Ario isn't the only one with a touch of foresight when it comes to this pair and their coming interaction. Ariane, sensing the tide, knows now is the time to really make her big play. The cat is out of the bag, the idea of crowning is now out there, so it's time to completely ensnare Aris and bind him to her before she brings up the specific plan of kidnapping Marcella. She does this by first removing some possible worries of shame by claiming that Tommen will be fine and left of Storm's End and eventually cast to the rock, which is a lovely thought, but unfortunately, we know that Tommen would forever be a threat to Marcella's crown and would never, ever be allowed to live if she were victorious. Ariane then dangles the carrot with the suggestion of a successful Marcella, allowing Eris to marry Ariane. Again, incredibly unlikely. Ariane will clearly go for a politically advantageous marriage. She then engages his prejudice of needing to protect the small little woman in front of him because she needs him so. It really is quite skillful. All of this is a roundabout way to Ariane, who isn't quite so skillful as to completely leave emotion out of the equation, going off about Quentin and revealing that storyline to us for the first time. Here's the quote. I found a letter lying incomplete beside it, a letter to my brother Quentin, off at Ironwood. My father told Quentin they must do all that his maester and his master at arms required of him, because one day you will sit where I sit and rule all of dawn, and a ruler must be strong of mind and body. So in my opinion, this is the real reason for the chapter is of even bigger consequence than the kidnapping of Marcella in the end. Even this part alone is the true reason for Ariane making her crowning plan in the first place. It is what has set her against her father and put so many wheels in motion. It is a huge part of Duran's interaction with his daughter later on, and further decisions about the future and where Ariane ends up in wins, and it is our big introduction 
into the idea of Quentin firstly as a person, but also becoming a major player. It really is huge for, again, who Ariana's become for the Dornish Feast storyline, Dornish Dance storyline, Daenerys as well in the future, and of course, Duran's master plan. It is just brilliant fuel and motivation for Ariana as a character, and I really do enjoy this part of her storyline. Even with us later finding out that it's all a huge mistake, that's also pretty good writing, I think. Anyway, even with the slip into revealing her true motivation, Ariane hits her mark. Her techniques work, and so Eris Oakheart is utterly defeated. Here's the quote. So your two princesses share a common cause, sir, and they share as well a knight who claims to love them both, but will not fight for them. I will, Sir Aris sank to one knee. Marcella is the elder and better suited to the crown. So Ariane has what she needs. The plan is now confirmed. The chances of being able to do all this without Aris on board are incredibly low, so this was the hinge on which the whole Dornish plan and plot swings. From this moment, we change the fate of all Ariane's friends, of Darkstore, Marcella herself, those big master plans again, Ariane, and of course, the life of Ares Oakheart. That is now sealed. So already, just a third of the way through the book, we have to say goodbye to a POV. That's pretty unusual. Technically, we've already said goodbye to both Ario and Asher, but they at least are coming back at some point. Not so for Aris. We get one more glimpse of him and that's it. So what can we say about the experience? Well, it's a toughie. Mainly, I think Aris Oakheart is a man who wanted to be better than he was and didn't use the tools available to him to do so. Instead, he fell back on oaths and vices that could allow him to feel guilt, yet not ever actually change. He certainly loves Ariane, and his dedication to Marcella is more than commendable, but he never really does anything with those feelings other than allow himself to be completely used and swung by Ariane. He is a lovesick fool, unfortunately. Classically, for George, he is a complex character. He's also a bit of a blip, and we'll soon be forgetting him, but I love the Tom and Marcella content, his superb interaction with Ariane and her powers, as well as an introduction to the real Dornish storylines. Everything we got in Ario's chapter was really a mislead. Now we're there. Now we've got the good stuff. So thank you, Aris, for bringing us that. And we've got one final chapter to go. So let's get to it. Our fourth chapter of the day. The last one is Brienne Free. Now you might remember last week we said that Brienne Free is a very, very important chapter in terms of key moments, and it probably trumps Brienne too. So we'd best pay good attention to it, hadn't we? We get our first real viewing of the relationship between Brienne and Pod. We get incredibly important and painful backstories about Brienne at Highgarden with Hyle Hunt. And we finally meet Randall Tarly, someone who's been looming over the entire story since the beginning of Game of Thrones. We'll also meet fan favourite Nimble Dick Crab, with him opening the path to Brienne's next quest. And all of it is framed in a restored main pool, which was utterly wrecked the last time we saw it. Yet, as we shall see, and I think this is the point of the chapter, evil still exists even where it looks like good is flourishing. It can never be so clear-cut as just, okay, a good thing is happening. Everyone's happy now because Randall Tarly is here and sorting everything out. No, unfortunately not. And we're actually going to see that several times. We're going to see the captain at the gate wanting to take the farmer's wife away. We're going to see the abuses of Randall to these women. And what the chivalrous knights of the Reach treated Brienne like. It is a, not a great chapter in that regard. It is tough to read. And in certain parts of it, I'm not as qualified as others to talk about certain subjects. So I encourage you to go way, way, way back and listen to our interview with Jinx Lier, who quoted this very passage from this chapter with Randall Tarley when discussing violence against sex workers and women in general and just how downright evil all of this is. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that because uh, she has some amazing thoughts. Let's talk about Randall though very quickly just before we start. He is Tywin on a smaller scale, isn't he? He's not had the reach over the realm that Tywin did, but Sam and Tyrion had very similar experiences in terms of emotional abuse. Indeed, it seems Sam got the worst of it in terms of physical abuse. 
We've been hearing his name again ever since Game of Thrones and now we actually get to meet him. And unfortunately, he kind of meets expectations and we expect more of that going forward. But we'll come to that in a second. Let's begin at the beginning, shall we? Let's have an opening quote for this chapter. My lady, sir, Podrick never seems certain what to call her. What are you looking for? Ghosts. A ruler rode by once. It does not matter. It was when Sir Jamie still had both his hands. How I loathed him with all his taunts and smiles. So the main setting of this chapter is somewhere we've been before for once. <laughs> that doesn't happen often in this book. Normally it's somewhere new, but before we get to that location, we arrive at one of much actual higher importance, or at least we think we do. Brienne can't quite remember. War is so chaotic, isn't it? But somewhere near is the site where Brienne and Jamie's lives changed forever, especially Jamie's, as they were captured by the Bloody Mummers. Brienne's life was already constantly changing in the time prior. She was riding to Renly, which we'll cover later. Then she was swearing to Catelyn. Then she was taking Jamie to King's Landing. So more accurately for her, this is the place where her quest changed. I don't think we need to expand on how Jamie's lost hand affected him. Crucially, it is also where their relationship with each other began to change. And that affects them both. It really wouldn't come to the forefront until Harrenhal and then King's Landing after that. But without their capture and this duel that Brienne remembers here, well, we're looking at a very different relationship indeed and some changed circumstance in the present. Jamie would be acting entirely different to Cersei and might not have loosed Tyrion at all. And Brienne almost certainly wouldn't be on the quest that she is on now. So it's a pretty important place for their history. And as the quote reminds us, Podrick is here now. Yay! He's joined with Brienne and we get a nice little reminder of his family backstory and how he came to be in the service to Tyrion. And in fact, it's more than a reminder because I'm pretty sure this is more detailed than anything Tyrion or Bronn ever decided to mention about the boy's past. It's a sad story and it has us feeling even more attached to the poor Podrick. The revelation that Pod was once due to be hanged before his story even really began is also some nice foreshadowing for the end of this book. We also find that Podrick hasn't had any further arms training all the way since Aaron Santagard died in the Bread Riots. Yes, we have a Preston Greenfield and Aaron Santagard reference in today's episode. That must be a bit of a rarity. That was a long time ago now, a real long time not to be training, and it makes his killing of Manda Moore in Blackwater all the more impressive. It really does seem Podrick has been done a disservice from all his mentors, including Tyrion, who in fairness did have a lot on his plate, but it ties in well with the themes of what is owed to children in our care that we'll explore in this chapter when we meet Randall and further on when we come to the orphanage with Gendry, etc. Luckily, Brienne just can't stop being a good person and does continue his training. And really, is there anyone better to learn from considering the skill she displays in this book? I love Brienne's thought of him not being a squire, but her also not really being a knight, so their matching really does make sense. And Pod turns out to be a great student, also he's really into it, so we like him even more for that. It seems like in every Brienne chapter so far, she has met some sort of farmer with some sort of cart, and today is no different. It serves as a marker for Brienne heading back into the warscape, back into the wilderness, and we hear the story from the father of his daughter being taken off. Unfortunately, these harrowing stories of sexual violence and the like increase the further we travel back into the Riverlands, although Brienne thankfully takes a little detour up to the Whispers soon enough. Like we mentioned last week, Duskendale was really the edge of the mainland war, and now we're getting back into the thick of it. I don't think it's spoken about enough how brave an act is for Brienne to head this way. Not only was she captured and nearly raped and made to fight a bear herself, but she also saw and heard things that stick with you. She saw true war. So to willingly go back into that area, yeah, okay, the war is supposedly over, but we know the truth of it. That is a huge act. None of us could have blamed Brienne for saying, no thanks, I'm never going back there, or I'm going home to Tarth, or whatever. But of course, she doesn't because she wants to save Sansa. It allows for great mirroring to Jamie's arc of retreading an old route that he'll do later on as well. From the Oxman, we hear about Maidenpool being rebuilt under Randall's rule, as well as the fact he has been dispensing justice to outlaws. We'll get much more of this when we actually reach Maidenpool and meet the man himself, but a large part of this chapter is presenting a tough moral choice to readers. Randall is doing good with this restoring and this justice, but parts of how he does it can be considered evil. 
And we ourselves already definitely consider him an evil man, thanks to his raiding of Sam and everything we've heard of him. But he's done more for these small folk than that actual Lord, Lord Newton, ever did. So what are we supposed to think here? It's a really interesting quandary and there's no real right answer, but it's going to be something present throughout the entire chapter. As we say so often, it's just a great mark of George's complexity. At the end of this chapter of the Oxman, we also get this hint in regards to Randall. Though she could not find it in herself to like the man, she could not forget the debt she owed him either. So that's a pretty juicy teaser. What could Brienne possibly owe someone like Randall Tartley? Could someone, like Randall, with all these things we've heard about him, actually have done some good or something good for Brienne anyway? It's a good way to get us salivating for this meeting. Well done, George. In the same conversation, we get two other quick notes. First, yet more septons and sparrows are swarming to King's Landing. I think we've seen some in every Brienne chapter now. So we're getting a good idea of the sheer number about to wind up in the city even if it is going to take a while for Cersei to realise. And we also, again, hear the tale of the Hound leading a bunch of outlaws round committing atrocities. We've already discussed this tale back in Cersei's chapter earlier, but the rumours will be even more present in Brienne's arc than anyone else's, like we said. And the foreshadowing matters more, because Brienne will supposedly discover the fate of Sandok again upon the Sacred Isle, while also discovering the truth about the Dog's Helm and who has actually been doing these truly horrific acts. And she gets the comeuppance for them as well, so this is really important to get that in here now. As we said earlier, we have to see this through the lens of a first-time reader, where this could have very easily seemed true. Next, Brienne thinks a little more on past betrothals, as she does fairly often, and about how different she could have been, and what a loss for the world if that life had actually come true. So it links pretty well with Ariane's detailing of her own many failed betrothals in the last chapter. When we come upon Maiden Pool itself, we immediately reignite that conversation about the bad being hidden among the good. Because it is good, the Maidenhall has been restored, and order lives, and, and there are all these men at arms now protecting the small folk against a further assault. But nothing is so simple, because these men can be evil as well, as we see with this sergeant and his intention to rape the woman. It's really gut-wrenching to see the near acceptance there is of this act by the, the oxman, the farmer, and the soldiers clearly think it's going to be pretty simple, probably because this type of thing is happening all the time. It's more crows, a different type of crow, taking advantage of a feast. Luckily, we still have heroes and people like Brienne, also, luckily, it doesn't actually come to swords, as we are introduced to Hyle Hunt, someone else who will go on to be a key character going forward, and another person who exemplifies this complex characterization of being good yet bad, as evidenced by Brienne's reaction to his appearance despite his saving of them. Just to really get him in our bad books, the farmer thanks Hyle, but mentions no thanks for Brienne. He even calls Hyle a true knight. We don't even know the reasons not to like Hyle Hunt yet, even with Brienne's subtle hints, but we know Brienne is the actual true knight, yet gets no recognition, so that rubs us up the wrong way. Hyle doesn't exactly endear himself to us with his blunt way of talking or his bitterness over apparently being assigned boring gate duty thanks to Brienne. Another hint to a mystery that we don't know about yet. I do enjoy that we get a Robar reference and he is highlighted as a great swordsman because I like Robar Royce, even if this compliment comes at Brienne's expense. It's more Royce mentions after last week as well. Brienne gets used to defending about Renly, that's what gets brought up here, and you can see like she almost has an automatic answer. It's a good reminder about the constant switching loyalties of the Reachmen as well, something we really haven't covered that well since the Blackwater. Hyle goes through that extensively here. As we enter the city, we get a description of remade Maidenpool and Randall putting men to work instead of letting them impose themselves on small folk. So again, he's doing good, but it pales in comparison to actually meeting the guy. They found Lord Tarly in the fish market, doing justice. Yes, justice, okay, that's one word for it. It's a really intense scene. Perhaps the nicest thing about it, which is saying something, is the discomfort that comes from people coming out to view corporal punishment as some sort of entertainment. That's how bad the rest of it is. That's the nice thing. Because people enjoying that kind of thing, that's bad. But compared to what else Brienne has to witness here in the next quick paragraph, the ease with which Randall doles out this horrible violence as his brand of justice, how casual and how offended it is, that's tough to swallow. 
And again, some of it is clearly too far, some okay closer to the edge. There's the argument that some, but not all of this is necessary to restore order and rebuild. So again, we have that difficult question. It's just the offhanded way in which Randall changes people's lives and it lets us see how he handed it out to Sam over the years. He's just got zero empathy. On a slightly cooler note, we also get our first view of Heartsbane, which might be a sword we see a lot more of later. And bear in mind, we are next to a Sam chapter here. He is first up next week, so just bear that in mind when we get there. Now, I'm not going to go too much into this Randall scene, because like I said, there's more qualified people to talk about. But we can see Brienne is clearly intimidated by Randall, and yet she manages to stick up to him. We've got this quote. Do that and answer to the throne. Yeah, that's pretty ballsy, considering the situation she's in. It'd be so much easier just to slink off like she wants to, but no, no, no. She is sticking to her quest. Another interesting quote from Randall himself is, lie to me and I will hang you. So again, foreshadowing for later on. It seems to just be slipping in there, doesn't it? One of those things you just pick up on on rereads. Bren also learns about Lysa's death here and that kind of realigning her options. Randall, he suggests the North personally, but we're not too bothered about that at the moment. We're just kind of blown away with how harsh Randall is, incredibly so, especially about the possibility of rape and it being deserved. Yes, that is something he actually says about Brienne when she goes on this quest. Uh, I don't want to talk about him. I don't want to give him the airtime. Let's move on to not a much better subject, but Hyle clearly feels guilt over the game that isn't quite expanded on just yet, while also comparing it to how his compatriots have grown and suffered as adults. Brienne thinks of a great quote to sum it up. What was it Catelyn Stark had called them? That night at Britterbridge, the nights of summer, and now it was autumn and they were falling like leaves. Damn. Some good Catelyn knowledge there and some good good on Brienne for bringing that up. That really does put it there. So Pod, he is smart enough to suss out that Brienne has a prior issue with Hyle, as Brienne notes, but only gets the tease of it being a cruel game. Still, we're only getting teased, but it was played at Brienne's expense. Classic George, he knows that getting our imaginations to do the work for him is a far more terrible road for us to travel. So the close of this chapter is going to be focused on Nimble Dick Crab and his opening of a new option uh, basically like we said last week it's like a video game he's the new quest giver this is the new arc for Brienne to follow now he's not going to appear just yet but Brienne goes to meet him and it's not a great intro to Dick Crab that the first assumption of someone looking for him would be there to do him harm I think that tells us quite a lot about his character before that Brienne has a little time to herself to think and we have some hints to the pretty Maris theory which is one of my favorite I'm sure you already know but the idea is and you know I'm obsessed with the five-year gap things the Primaris who were meet and dance was originally the planned ending for Brienne and that she would have gone over to Essos as she thinks about doing here and would have failed and would have become this disfigured woman who ends up as a sellsword because you can't find Sansa or Aya. I really, really like that theory. I'm sure I'm, apologies for if I'm missing anyone who specifically came up with that, but that's a really good one and, and these hints are pretty dead on there. The quote is, Brienne did not want to chase the girl across the narrow sea where even language would be strange to her. Yeah, that really does get me thinking what could have been. Again, the five-year gap. But that's not what's important really for Brienne here because she also thinks they will laugh at me as they laughed at Highgarden. So that's a heartbreaking sentence in and of itself as Brienne thinks about what life in Essos could be like for her. Unfortunately, it is a feeling she knows well and this finally gets the whole sorry tale out of her. Again, it is tough, angering reading. It's a challenge for any of us to read this about what happened like, again i'm not going to repeat it because it gets me so angry it's a challenge not to get really really incensed at what is done to brienne because it's just horribly cruel it's a good inclusion from george that cruelty and harshness don't just come in the form of swords or medieval torture or political gain this is something that can very easily be transcribed to our real lives of just bullies 
people just being horrible. And again, I'm not even going to read any quotes out to you about these different men being extra nice to Brienne because it just really gets to me. It is so unfair. It is one of the biggest injustices we read in the books. All of it, is, it just makes for uncomfortable reading. It's how uncomfortable it is for Brienne, the unwanted attention. And, you know, she's not come to high ground for all that. And again, the finding out this interaction with Randall that we learn about might be the worst parts. Here is a quote that I will read. They were knights, she said, stunned. Anointed knights. And honourable men, the blame is yours. Yes, that might be the most infuriating part. Woman blaming. Fuck you, Randall. You'd think the child abuse of Sam would be enough for one character, but no, George double layers it up with all this horrible things that he says to Brienne, and yeah, fuck you, Randall. Okay, I'm going to go down a tangent. We're near the end. I don't want to finish on a bad note. Let's move on to Nimble Dick very quickly here, which will cheer many listeners up because he is a fan favourite. If you've ever paid attention to Song of Madness, which I know you will do, you'll know the support that Nimble Dick Crab has. But in this interaction, Brienne is probably a bit quick with her bribery to get uh, Nimble Dick to give up what he knows. Because once that line is set, Dick has fun exploiting it. Brienne eventually comes to a philosophical choice of either steel or gold, but she chooses the more peaceful option. Again, from this information, we know the fool to actually be Shagwell. And we get another hint with him going pale at the sight of Tarly Men. Of course he would, we know what he's been up to. That's another, unfortunately, a good part of Randall being there is the reputation of what's been happening to the outlaws of late. So you can see why they're trying to get away because they aren't part of Rorge and Bites' crew and what happens to Salt Pants. They just need to get out. And that, like we said earlier, does set the next line of Brienne's quest. The one that will really get off the beaten track and onto the great chapters we'll have coming up later. We can see already that she has a certain distrust of uh, Nimble Dick Crab and we can see her reason for it. That's going to come up big later on considering his unfortunate ending. I think we shall leave it there, my fellow green folk, because it's running long, uh, it's a busy week for me, and I'm sure a busy week for you all as well. We're all busy, aren't we? But we luckily have time to talk about these chapters. Very quickly, let me talk about next week, part five. Who will we be looking at then? Well, like I mentioned earlier, we will have our second Samwell chapter, Samwell 2, Out on the Cold Seas, then Jamie 2, Cersei 4, and the Iron Captain. Okay, so we're getting a bit different there. We're following up on the Ironborn chapter and of course we got a Cersei in there because well because we're always going to and that Iron Captain that really does pick off a really important part of the book because we have those two Ironborn chapters back to back with the King's Moot, a Brienne in there and then the Queenmaker chapter of Arianne. Now okay I'm skipping ahead a week there but I'm just letting you know because that is obviously quite a big hinge to the book there and about halfway through as well that's how quick we're going. So again thank you thank you for joining us do get in touch, thoughts and comments, you know how to do it. Always like to hear from you. Thank you again to our wonderful patrons and for all of you being so nice about my own writing. Don't forget, live stream this Saturday on Radio Westeros on YouTube. You already know the place, you're already there every week anyway. Come and see me try and talk coherently about the uh, prologue of Winds of Winter. I'll try my best and you get to see Oak Boy and Lady Gwyn anyway. We'll be back next week and thank you again. I thank you for joining us here. Have a good week everybody. See you later.